Well, good morning, everyone. I've already had the chance to say good morning and scream music at you, but now I have a chance to uh, open up God's Word. And before we do that, I know we just prayed. I'm going to pray just one more real, real quick, just to ask for the Spirit to illumine our hearts. And what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit's moving in this place. He's present in this place. And we don't, we don't in, you know, invoke that. He moves as he moves. But we just pray that um, in this time of illumination that our hearts would be open to hear the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are opening up your word and God, amaze us. Catch us off guard. Uh, teach us something we may not have ever seen before and a story that we may have heard before. And for those of us who may not know you, oh Lord, oh God, move in this place and in their heart that they may find you, they hear you calling their name, that they may come to know the one true Jesus Christ, who is their salvation, their freedom. Lord, we speak your name, the power of your name in this place. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in the middle of a, of a sermon series uh, through the book of Acts. It's been uh, quite, a, quite a long time, and we're just kind of rocking and rolling right here in the middle of it here at Acts chapter 17, uh, the adventures of Paul, Silas, and Timothy as they're kind of trudging along on their missionary journey and encountering various kinds of trials and troubles and tribulations and, and how they interact and how they work with that. And most of the time, we kind of take it as, what can we do as a church? But every now and then, there's also things in here to, uh, to look at self-reflectively. Like, what can, how, what's this mean to me and my relationship? What's the challenge I'm hearing here today? And that's kind of where I, I'll bring our focus on today as we look at Acts chapter 17. Before we get in that, though, how many people remember when they got their driver's license? Raise their hand. Ryan, driver's license, good, 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 good. Uh, everyone get it when you could, 16? Everyone, some people maybe wait, right? Okay, so those of you who wait, this, this example may not work for you, but uh, when I, I was uh, in Pennsylvania when I was 16. Now, in Pennsylvania, you could not um, get your permit, your, uh, your per, uh, the, the thing that comes before your driver's license. You couldn't get that until you hit 16. Now, in Florida, we moved to Florida where my sisters, they got to have their permit at the age of 15, but I digress. I had to wait until 16 to get mine in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania did everything the hard way. But anyway, so on December 23rd, my birthday, 1998, I go down and I take, yeah, 19, don't laugh at 1998, Goodness gracious. Uh, anyways, no, I go down to, uh, to take the test. And it's a computer test, and you got to, each screen, you got to, you know, enter in there. I think it actually tells you if you got it right or wrong. So test anxiety through the roof. But I was so eager and so excited. I couldn't wait. December 23rd, I'm, I'm up. Let's go. Let's go down to the, to the DMV, and let's take this test. And so I do that, and I pass it, everybody. Thanks be to God. And they give me this little carbon paper, this, like, 8 by 11, pink sheet. Remember carbon copy paper? Everyone remember that? You have to press it. And then, so I got, and you get a pink one. And they call it your temporary temp. Okay? And so, I, whatever. So your temporary temp. And so I have this piece of paper. Now, what they say is that once you get this piece of paper, you're free to drive with a parent supervision or guardian or whatever. Someone over the age, I think, of 18. And that uh, within a month, you will get something set in the mail, and it will be your permanent permit. So you got your temp temp and your permanent permit. I don't know. I think there, there's a case of, of rep repetition. But anyways, so you get this white card in the mail. Once you get the white card in the mail, you then can call it to the DMV and schedule your driver's license test, the on the road, right? Okay? Now, typically what happens is that there's so many people in the pipeline waiting to do that that it takes three to four months 
It's once you get the card. There's usually a waiting period of three to four months. I call up. I get it the first day. Remember, I'm very eager, very excited. I'm already ready to have that driver's license. And I call up and I say to them, hi, I got my permanent permit in the mail and I'm ready to take the test. When can I do that? And they say, well, sir, we have an availability next week. Would you like that? God has shineth down upon me. And I'm on the phone and I'm like, mom, you'll never guess. They have an appointment next week. I'm going to take it. And she's like, absolutely not. Put her foot down, straight on down like that. Crushed all of my dreams. She says, no, 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 no. You're not ready for that. Mom, I'm already ready. I'm ready for this. So eager, so excited. And she said, no, and I had to wait. I had to wait three to four months to get that license. And once I did, I was able to drive. I'm, you know, everyone remembers when you drive. The first, do you all remember where you first went? The first place that you went? I do. I went to my grandparents' house because it's the only place that I knew by heart how to get to. And I went there and, and showed them my, off my license. And then later that night, my mom and I work at, worked at the same place. We were both at Red Lobster. She worked as a waitress and I was a busboy. And they wanted uh, someone to go to Walmart to get supplies. And so, of course, with my new driver's license, I was like, that's me. I'm ready to go. And I left without asking any permission from mom. Well, she was waiting tables. What did she know? She's out there you know, doing, doing her own thing. And when I came back, she knew that I had left, and she was not happy. Some of those tables did not get refills as I was getting yelled at. <laughs> I was eager. I was excited. You ever have that feeling of eagerness and excitement? Another example of a friend of mine in Florida, a worship team member. She sang. Her name was Carolyn Overstreet. She loved Christmas. And so in July, the Hallmark Channel does Christmas in July. And she would bake Christmas cookies. She would bring out her Christmas decorations in July in Florida. She'd have them all ready. And she would carve out her schedule to make sure that she was there to watch all of these Christmas movies on Harmark. She loved Christmas so much. She was so excited and so eager to have it that she was ready to have all of that ready, even though it was just July. Now, of all my stories, you all begin to wonder right about this time, what's he talking about? Today, as we go into the gospel, gospel, today as we go into the book of Acts, written by Luke, we're going to encounter two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And and what Luke is doing here um, from a grammatic writing argumentation style thing, he's comparing and contrasting. He's giving us these two cities to look at in tandem and to see what was similar and what was different in the way when Paul and Silas went and preached the gospel to them. One city receives it very, very well, and one city does not do it very, very well. And, and, and he kind of, Luke kind of characterizes these two cities as one being very, very jealous and, and not doing well with, with the gospel, and another one being very eager, eager to receive. And so today, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at those things. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to talk about what's similar and what's different. And at the end of the sermon, as I did once before, then you will get the main point. If you're here for the first time, typically my style is about right now is to give you a main point to remember. You don't get to see that until the very, very end. So everyone must wait on pins and needles and pay attention, okay? All right, let's dive in. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Let's open up the Bibles. They got Bibles in the back of the pews if you want to use them. Or you can use your phone or your own. And we're looking at pages 1100 to 1101 in those pew Bibles. Acts chapter 17, 1 through 15. Now, now let's remember, where do we leave Paul and Silas off? 
Last week, we left off with them being imprisoned and converting uh, a, um, a prisoner, uh, actually the prison guard that was there. And this was after Paul had been beaten and flogged and, and just roughed up for the gospel because of what he was doing. And then he went to Lydia's house met people there, and then it says there right in the end of chapter 16 that uh, after they have been encouraged, they, they, uh, they depart. They go on to the next city. Now, I don't know how long this time period was, but it always makes me wonder, what does Paul look like as he's going into these churches now? Because he was beaten with rods, like severely beaten. So that's black eyes, that's bloody everything, and I just think, if I came into church this morning with black eyes and my clothes torn and, and everything else and stood up here getting ready to preach the gospel to you, I'm sure most people would be like, is he okay? You know, and like maybe Jennifer should take, take this one while he takes care of himself. But it doesn't deter Paul. Paul's like, whatever, I'm going. And he's going on to the next city and he's continuing to do his thing. And what is his thing? Well, as you see here, he gets to go back into the synagogue. That's one of Paul's habits. He goes to a new city, he goes straight to the synagogue and teaches to his brothers and sisters, the Jewish kinsmen there. He teaches to them the gospel because he needs them to see it and understand. And then usually what happens is Gentiles are the ones that come to faith and he continues ministering to them. But this is his M.O., Okay, so he leaves Lydia and now he goes into Thessalonica and guess what? Chapter 17, look what it says. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica where there was ooh, a synagogue of the Jews. So happy day for him. And Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them, some were persuaded. They were, they were okay with this. And they joined Paul and Silas, meaning they responded to the gospel. They believed what he had to say. But also a great many of devout Greeks joined too, and not also not a few of the leading women, which is a way to write there was a lot of prominent women who also join. Luke makes a point both here in Thessalonica and in Berea, just to give some foreshadowing, to say that there were prominent women who joined. And he's doing that on purpose because this is important, that the spread of the church and the gospel was made possible much in part to the support of these leading ladies and the money that they had and how they helped support the missionaries and the movement. It's very important. It's, very, um, it's, very, it's, a, it's a nod into the importance of egalitarian ministry and what all that means. Verse 5, but the Jews, mm, they were jealous, circle jealous, and taking some wicked men with them of the rabble. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, Jason being kind of like the first house church there. And so he's kind of supporting Paul and Silas and others who have, have come, uh, come into belief in Christ. So they go to the house of Jason. They seek to bring Paul and Silas out to the crowd, but they couldn't find him there. So they dragged Jason out and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And that accusation, everyone, is absolutely true, but also not true. 
It's true because they are turning the world upside down. They're turning the whole Jewish world upside down in that what you are thinking, you are missing a key element, and that's the Messiah Christ. And it is creating a stir, but not the uproar that these guys have created. Isn't that ironic that they're blaming them for causing a riot when they, it says, banded with wicked men and caused a riot in the city? It just seems a little odd and obviously a window into their heart. Causing a riot, turning the world upside down. And the people, verse 8, and the city authorities, they were disturbed. They heard these things and they, they didn't like it. And when they had taken money, meaning almost like bail, they took bail as a security from Jason and the rest and they let him go. And that's really a warning to that house church. Don't do this again kind of thing. And so the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away at night by Berea, meaning they felt the temperature of the city, the community in Thessalonica that was supporting Paul, the temperature's a little hot. And they're saying, it's probably not a great idea. If, it's not safe for you to be here. It's not that they want them to, to, to stay for their own protection. It's more of a, for the sake of the ministry, you need to go. And they send them off to Berea. So they go to Berea, and guess what? Another Jewish synagogue. Happy day. And now these Jews in this synagogue in Berea, they were more noble, meaning they were of higher birth status. They may have had more money. They, they're a little bit more, um, in some ways, behaved uh, in terms of, of what's going on here. And they receive the word, it says, with all eagerness. Circle that examining the scriptures daily to see if these things of what Paul and Silas were true. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women, again, of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews came from Thessalonica and learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So look at, the, look at how crazy the group in Thessalonica is to get them to stop. And they have to travel a great distance. It was not a short distance from where they were in Thessalonica to Berea. There's some, there's some travel involved. That takes some dedication. And they're coming and they're starting stuff there. And then the brothers in that town immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy chose to stay. They remained there. And those who conducted Paul and brought him as far as Athens, and that's what we'll see next week, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, then those who supported him, they departed back to Berea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now, like I said, you've got two cities, and you've got two reactions, and there are similar things that are happening. That's why I know this is a compare and contrast game, because as you look at both of the cities, Thessalonica and um, Berea, what was similar? What happened identically? Paul and Silas go to the city. They go where? Synagogue. Oh, you're paying attention. Good job. And they go to the synagogue, and what does Paul do? He begins to reason with them. And that word reason means to preach. He preaches to them and trying to get them to understand the truths that are in the Scripture. It actually says he examines the Scripture, which really means to open up. And this is really key to understanding what Paul's purpose and what he is doing. In the Gospel of Luke, after the resurrection, Jesus is seen talking to a few people on the road to Emmaus. And then after that scene, he then goes to the disciples and talks to them. In both instances, the same word is used. He opens, Jesus opens the scriptures to them so that they begin to see and realize the truth 
of the resurrection, that he is, he is resurrected, full body, and that this had to happen so that there is salvation for sin, so that they can be with him forever. He opens those scriptures to them. Paul here, the same word being used, is standing in that revealing spot of Christ for his kinsmen. He's opening the scriptures to them so that they can see, so that they understand that Jesus is the Messiah and that he had to suffer just as the prophecies had been foretold for there to be salvation of sins, for there to be redemption for everyone. So he does that in both cities. And in both cities, hordes of Greeks come to faith and prominent women come to faith. Now, where are the differences? See, the difference is, is that in Thessalonica, it wasn't many Jews that came to faith. No, it was only some. Only some were persuaded. The rest of them, it says, were jealous. What does jealous mean? The word, Greek word for jealous here means basically to burn with desire, to, to want to have and possess what is out there, what, what they don't have. And, and what, is, what they are jealous for in terms of gathering all these wicked men together to, to stop this, this truth is that they were presented with the gospel truth of Jesus and it was too confrontational for them. What Paul was trying to say to them is this brand new teaching that connects the dots of everything in our prophecies. When he, when he says they opened the scriptures, Paul didn't have a Bible like this. He's working from what Jewish people had at the time, the prophecies, the books of the law. That is what he has at his disposal. And he's opening that to them to get them to see. But these Jews were so jealous, so jealous at the fact that Paul was able to convert and get all of these Greeks and some, even some of the Jewish people to come and understand that Jesus is the actual way. Why are they jealous about that? Well, because as you take people away from the temple, so to speak, so goes the temple tax, so goes the power and the prominence, and they obviously did not care for that. That's really what's at the source of this. They are jealous of the gospel because they don't want a new way. They are happy with the system that they have. Prophecies were written hundreds and thousands of years ago, they think, right? Jesus had, the Messiah hasn't come yet in their mind, so is he even going to come? Rather than that, I'm just going to continue to be fat and happy doing what I want to do and stay right here. The Thessalonica church has what I call an Egypt problem. In the Old Testament, if you remember the Jewish folks, when they were held in captivity in Egypt and God gets involved with Moses and the plagues and they leave and they cross the Red Sea and, and Charlton Heston puts his, his, his staff down and, the, they, you know, so, and, then, and they leave and they go out into the wilderness and everything's great. They witness the power of God and then guess what? They get hungry. They get hangry. And they're out in the wilderness and there's nothing to eat. No one brought a granola bar and here they are walking around and then they begin to yell at Moses. Why did you get us out of Egypt? Why would you do this? Why would you lead us into this place? Let's go back. We need to go back to Egypt, back into chains and bondage, because at least there we know we have a hot meal. At least there we know that we, our bellies can be full. Imagine that. And we often do that ourselves too. When confronted with the freedom and the power that Jesus represents, how often do we... Um, uh, I'd rather do this instead and be shackled and chained into things that don't satisfy. 
got an Egypt problem. That's what Thessalonica has. They got an Egypt problem. They want to go back. They want to go back to just what they know. And they don't have time for Paul's teaching because Paul's teaching means this is a radical new way. And, and in a lot of ways, folks, it's not new. It's just a continuation of God's redemptive plan from start to finish. And all Paul's trying to do is open the scriptures up to them so that they, they see that. But they respond with jealousy. They respond with jealousy because they would rather have their bellies full and being where they are than actually stepping into this unknown of sorts and what could actually come true, the, the wealth of the kingdom that waits them. They'd rather have their immediate satisfaction than having to wait. My father-in-law uh, was, was here last week, and he made reference to this. It's like the marshmallow test. Has anyone ever seen that YouTube video where children are sat down in a room, and they give them three little marshmallows, and they say to them, you can't eat those marshmallows. You need to wait. If you can wait 20 minutes and you don't eat those marshmallows, we'll give you bigger marshmallows, big, huge ones for you to eat. And they shut the door, and they watch the kids, and the kids are like crawling at the walls because they're thinking, I can eat those three marshmallows now and rather do that. How many kids actually did that, would actually just eat those marshmallows rather than waiting for the joy of what's going to happen? They took what's right in front of them. And that's what's happening here with Thessalonica. And that's what kind of happens in our, in our culture today. And faced with the truth of the gospel, how often do we look the other way and just kind of keep to our own lives because that we can manage, that we know. We don't have to step into the unknown. We're in a season where the second coming of Christ is supposed to happen any day. could happen any day. And it hasn't happened for thousands of years. And so I think a lot of people just kind of are a little jaded with it. Well, maybe he's not coming. Maybe he's not real. And therefore, scriptures aren't that real and I really don't have to pay that much attention. I'd rather have my own life, my own way. And that's what's going on with Thessalonica. Enough about them. We go to Berea next. Okay, because we know what they did with that jealousy. They got a riot of going and they, they want to kill basically Paul and Silas. So they flee to Berea. What happens to Berea? Same thing, same preaching. But what do they do? They receive the teaching, the word, with all eagerness. And that word in the Greek means to be basically already ready, to be already ready and willing to receive that which that they don't have or to participate in that which they're being called to participate in. It's a different word than jealousy. Both jealousy and eagerness have an eagerness quality to them, but jealousy is more focused on obtaining and having, and eagerness is more focused on receiving, being ready and willing to receive what is that? Now, now, look also what the Bereans did. They didn't take Paul's teaching just for granted. They didn't take Paul's teaching. I'm like, oh, Jesus is the Christ? Great, sign me up. No. They were eager for it. They received it. And then they examined the Scriptures. Examined meaning from bottom to the top. They, they, they connected the dots themselves. And it shows us a character trait for them that we all should have their high value for Scripture, that the Scriptures are actually true. And so if this person is coming with this interpretation that sounds too good to be true, let's find out. Let's get to it and see where it's at. Remember, Paul's whole stance here is that Jesus is the Christ and he had to suffer in order to die and, and raise again and, and be forgiveness of sins, which is all the book of Isaiah. And so they 
comb those prophecies. Do we have that high value of Scripture? Do you have that high value of Scripture? To put that full trust in it that it can actually connect the dots and bring about truth and deeper understanding. Is it something that you delight in and long for with all eagerness like the Bereans? And this is before they even even respond to the gospel. They hear what Paul says and they go and they look and they find it out. They are eager to receive this great news from Paul that is revealed in Scripture. And, and in so doing, what happens is, is that we see a great teaching point. You see, Paul and Peter have had sermons already. And they have seen massive conversions, thousands, right? I have yet to see a community hear the gospel presented by Peter or Paul and say, you know what? Let me go check the prophecies to see if this is true which means that their conversions came by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That we know. That's Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit turned their hearts to understanding, and they professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They, they get it. But here, what we see with the Bereans, and the Holy Spirit's definitely a part of it, but now we see the power of Scripture, and we see the power of the Word of God. And maybe that's why Paul writes in Romans 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because in it is the power of salvation. And maybe that's why he writes in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. And within it has the power of training us in righteousness of what's right in Christ. What's the big deal about Scripture? Scripture has just the same power as the Holy Spirit to illumine us to the truth of Jesus the Christ. And you can reject that and be jealous of it and think, I, can, I just want my own life. I don't really, this is, this this can be a, um, a calendar of quotes on my desk to give me a little thought of the day, but not necessarily be my guide and the thing that instructs my life. Or you can receive it with all eagerness and willing to receive it and, and, and be already ready and already in to hear about the truth that's in here and be excited to receive what, what's, what's being revealed. This happened to me once when I was in, uh, in Florida as a youth minister. I was reading the book of Genesis. How many people have, know the book of Genesis? At least know it. It's in the beginning of the Bible. It's the first one. Okay, how many, how many people have ever took a gander at it? Just kind of looked at it, perused maybe? Yeah, I often tell the joke that Genesis is probably the most often read Bible in the book because usually January we all make those resolutions. I'm going to read the Bible. And you read Genesis and Exodus, you get to Leviticus and you shut it down, right? And then you're like, nope. And then maybe start it up again. You go back to Genesis and we're very familiar with Genesis. But I was going to put in a talk together for students. And I was reading about Abraham. And Abraham, you know, is the father of the Israel nation. And, and God worked with him and blessed him because of his faithfulness and said to Abraham that you're going to have a son, Isaac. And, and through Isaac, your descendants are going to be numerous as the stars. It's going to be great. You'll be my people, all the things. Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 says to God, how do I know that you're going to deliver on this promise? How do I know you're going to be true and faithful? And so God says, shh, go to sleep. And he puts him to bed, has him go and take a nap. And in that nap, Abraham sees these broken animals on either side of a path. Broken meaning sacrifice, so animal pieces, ew. But they're on either side of the path there. And what this is, this is an oath. This is a form of how you seal a covenant with one another. Usually the covenant is between someone of higher importance that has all the money, that has the protection, and is going to provide that to someone of lesser importance. And the person of lesser importance vows to obey 
anything that that higher important person wants. And so what happens is that the lesser important person walks through the path of those broken animals, saying as an oath to the guy of higher importance, if I break anything of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. That's how serious it is. You have the right to kill me, basically, for this. But in the dream, remember Abraham said, how do I know you're going to be faithful, God? In the dream, it's not Abraham who walks through. It's a fiery pot, which is the symbol of the Lord. It's the Lord who walks through those paths, that path, saying to Abraham, you, you are not going to be faithful. And how you know I'm going to keep my promise is I'm going to be sacrificed in order for your disobedience. <gasps> and I had the Bible and I threw it down. Literally, just like this. And I'm looking in my office and I'm looking around. No one's in my office. I'm like, do people know? Like, do they know that this is Jesus? That's Jesus dying for our sins, right? For our disobedience. That this is in Genesis chapter 12, thousands of years before a prophecy is even written about the Messiah. And before Jesus is even mentioned. And yet here it is, Moses records this thing down. It's part of the oral tradition of how Abraham knew that God was faithful. Scriptures have the power to reveal the God's honest truth. That Jesus is the Messiah. He had to suffer so that we may be with him. And in these two cities, you can receive that with jealousy and thinking, I just want my own life. I just want my, and I'm, I'm, I'm upset that you're taking people away from my power, and I want those people back, and I have nothing to do with, with that. Or with eagerness, willing to receive and allow that truth to change you, to change you, to open your eyes up to the truth of Jesus. And the last thing that I would leave us with on this then is that Paul very much understands this. And he is stopping at nothing to make sure he reveals this scripture. He preaches it to his Jewish brothers and sisters to, so that they know because he is troubled by the fact that they are not responding if you were to go through the, the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, you read through Paul's anguish of what he's, what, what am I doing with my Jewish brothers who are not responding to this? Are they really chosen? Are they really of you? Because if they were, they should be responding, but they're not. What's going on here? And he comes to the conclusion that maybe, maybe not all Israel is Israel. But does that cause him to throw his hands up and stop? He presses on and will suffer beatings and floggings and jail and stoning for the sake that his kinsmen will hear the gospel in full trust that the gospel will have the power to open their eyes. It's not on him to open their eyes. He just needs to present it. Do you have that feeling for others in your lives? Do you know of someone in your life who is very near and dear to you but just isn't responding? Is there a friend or a neighbor? Is there somebody? And do you have the same zeal as Paul? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I know when I go home, and I know I'm supposed to talk to my neighbors because I tell you all to do it, but when I go home sometimes, I'm like, ooh, nap time, right? And, and you just kind of 
forget. The power of salvation is contained in these scriptures. May we be eager not only to receive it, but also share it. And that's the main point of this sermon today. Eagerness means that you are already ready. May you have a heart that is already ready to receive and grow deeper in faith in Christ and to share that with other people with the same eagerness so that they may come to know who Jesus Christ is. I'll leave you with this last thing. Psalm 119 talks about what it means to be eager after the Lord. Let me read it to you real quick. Psalm 119 says this, Listen to the longingness and the eagerness in the psalmist. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law, your word, is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Oh, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. That is a heart that is already ready to receive the joy of the Lord revealed in his word. May you have that heart as well. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you again for how you reveal to us these simple truths that are so profound. Of course, Scripture is important. Of course, we know that the Bible has, has information in it that can change our lives, that is good for preaching and teaching, but maybe sometimes we forget to long for it ourselves, to go grow deeper, to discover new teachings that we may have not seen before, to open our eyes to a deeper understanding. May we have an experience where we see something that is so shocking that we drop <laughs> the scriptures, the drop the Bible, and pick it up again and have to read it again because of, of what we just discovered. May that bring a joy in our hearts, a boldness in our witness to be eager to not only receive but to share with others that same information, that Jesus is the Christ. Oh, what a beautiful name, dear Lord. We speak it with great power, the power to save souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing our final song together. What a powerful name it is indeed. So as you leave here today, don't forget that power. Don't, don't bring Jesus down to a good idea, a way of life that sounds great to live. He's the Lord of Lords. And his power is revealed to us through his Holy Spirit for sure, but it's also revealed to us in his scripture. And so may that you understand that power. May you take that power and that truth to others so that they know it as well. Share it with someone with great eagerness, everybody. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen.